You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So I, I became a Christian in London, um, and I've been back many times. I love the city of London. And my, one of my favorite buildings is uh, King's Cross Station, and um, it is this beautiful Victorian structure. Uh, uh, it is, uh, looks like a palace, kind of, and um, all the trains to the northern parts of uh, England go through King's Cross Station. Of course, if you know Harry Potter, uh, that's where uh, the platform nine and three quarters is. It's actually not there, though. Um, they don't have that platform. But one thing I love about King's Cross, and I love this about the name uh, when I was not a Christian, uh, something about that name, um, I just, it, uh, it was very intriguing to me. I didn't know what they were talking about when they said it was King's Cross Station. So when I became a Christian, I um, found out that that is actually, um, that is the structure of the Gospel of Mark. That the first half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, is all about he is the king. Um, that Jesus' identity is defined in, in Mark 1 through 8. And the second half of the Gospel of Mark is the, his mission, is that he's going to die on a cross. That is what his mission is. And right in the middle is where Peter, he tells them finally, I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter says, you, might, you must never do that. And he uh, rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And he tells them in the kingdom of God, um, the last is first and the first is last. So uh, King's Cross is in many ways uh, definitive of the Gospel of Mark. And we see really the two halves of that gospel of Mark in this passage. Um, and you see it first in his baptism where you get his identity. Uh, this is my beloved son with whom I well please. And you've got to start with identity. Um, and then after you see the baptism, he sends um, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, sends him off into the wilderness. So in many ways... His identity rooted in the Father's love empowers his mission to go out and die for the world on a cross. So you see the identity and the mission in this one story. And I would love to see a painting. I was searching for a painting. And those of you who are, you know, 
knowledgeable about art, art history might know such a painting. I think I've seen one where in the foreground of the painting, you see the baptism occurring at the Jordan River, and you see this image of a dove coming down on Jesus uh, as he rises up out of the, the water. And then in the background, you see uh, the, the desert, and you see uh, Satan just waiting for him in the wilderness. Because in that passage, uh, both are in view, both his baptism and the temptations in the wilderness. And they're very much linked, because he needs the power of baptism to go out and to fight the devil. So I want to look at those two things. Um, first of all, the baptism, and then the temptation. Um, so it says in verse 9, he came from Nazareth. That's where we know he was from. Um, no reason that anyone would ever make that up. It was a very small, uh, completely unknown uh, little hamlet. It wasn't even really a village. Just a few clusters of homes in the backwoods of uh, Galilee, northern part, um, you know, the, the least prestigious part of Israel. So he's from Nazareth. Um, Mark is the earliest gospel. It's the most historically um, detailed gospel. It's the fastest moving gospel. So again, just the fact that it's written that he's from Nazareth. Be tough to make that up. Nobody would want to make that up. I believe it's a historical event. And it says he was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is John the Baptist. This is his cousin. Actually, in his own day, John the Baptist was far more famous than Jesus. He is actually mentioned uh, outside of the gospels, John the Baptist. So he was very well known. Um, and John, if you know about the baptism of John, he was baptizing people um, to initiate them into a new community, a purified community. And they were coming to him and they were confessing their sins to him. And so the question is, uh, why would Jesus come and be baptized? It was baffling to John. Um, John said, why, why am I baptizing you? Why, you should be baptizing me. I'm the one who's a sinner. You're the one who's righteous. And Jesus said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm doing this to identify with you. In some ways, I am, uh, for the first time, taking on human sin uh, by going through, by kind of humiliating myself, even though he was sinless, he comes and he humbles himself to identify with his brothers and sisters and to sit with us in our plight. And so uh, he comes and he is baptized. He's He's willing to be baptized, to be that humble. But in his baptism, um, you see the very life of the Trinity all at once. You see the, it's like that little portion of the Jordan River, wherever that was in Galilee, the whole life of the Trinity just suddenly explodes on the scene. And it says in verse 10, when he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. And that's a reference back to Isaiah, where Isaiah prays to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and tear them open and come down. And uh, I don't think that means the sky parted and the, and the sun shone through. It was more like a rip in the fabric of space-time. Like if you've seen Stranger Things, the portal where the upside-down interacts with this world. It's, it's a different dimension coming in. And this is where the life of God comes and intersects right there with Jesus. And it says in verse 10 that the Spirit descending on him. It's an active verb. It just keeps happening. It's descending on him like a dove. And the Father says, this is my Son. So you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit. And he is identifying with us in our sins so that he can give us this experience of being welcomed into the life of the Trinity. And the presence of divinity is so thick here that it is actually manifest as a dove. Um, It wasn't a real dove. It was more like a Patronus, if you know Harry Potter. And they send out, and there's so much much supernatural there. There's uh, so much energy that it actually appears as a figure. 
So, you know, the, the main character, Dumbledore, has a phoenix. And in this case, it's a, it's a dove. I kind of picture it like that, like some kind of glowing apparition that is um, maybe kind of something that's like, you know, made out of uh, electromagnetic radiation. I don't know what the dove was like, but it's, it's not the spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol, a manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the spirit envelops him in light, um, the son, the word, my beloved son, envelops him in sound. So he is both being wrapped up in, in light and glory, and he's hearing the voice from heaven. Verse 11, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And beloved and well pleased are similar. They're very similar things. This is the father speaking to the son. Of course, Jesus is the eternal son of God. He knew the father took pleasure in him. But now as a man at 30 years old, he spent 30 years of his life walking around this world. And it is empowering for him to hear this as a human being. You are my beloved son. And to also tell everyone around him, this is my beloved son. This is the son of God. And the word well-pleased uh, is uh, a word where we get euphoria from. Eudokane is the Greek word. And it means to take pleasure in, to take delight in. To be glad in. It's kind of the word you would use uh, when you see your child playing sports or on stage, um, on a field or on a court. You know, when, when you see your child performing, um, you know, for, to be honest, you kind of don't really look that much at the other children. They kind of fade into the background. They become kind of hazy and your child. And you can look at your child in a second and figure out just by their, by their gait, how the way they walk, the way they run. Um, their face, you, you know it's your child. And you take a special delight, uh, no matter what they do. Even if, even if they're being dunked on, as my son was recently. Um, he's not here to, to hear this, so don't tell him I said this. But um, they lost by 60 points. That's hard to do. They lost by 60 points. And he got dunked on viciously. And the whole place just erupted in, in joy. But even then, I took pleasure in my son. You know, even then. Uh, you almost took a charge there, Cooper. You know, good job. <laughs> But imagine uh, the pleasure. If I took pleasure like that, you know, imagine the eternal pleasure of the father and the son. This is the father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. My uh, professor that I most loved at seminary, his name was James Loder. And he defined love as the non-possessive delight and the unique particularity of the other. And he said that gazing at someone's eyes, and he said you can really only do this with someone where it's a romantic relationship, but gazing at someone's eyes for five minutes and, and enjoying this non-possessive delight, uh, he says that will save you years of counseling. Just do that once a day. And uh, I challenge you, set the timer, five minutes. It gets awkward quick. But he says just doing that uh, will save you years of counseling because the non-possessive delight in the other person's uniqueness and their particularity is what love is, according to Dr. Loder. Um, Another author that I really love is named Jim Wilder, and he was, um, Dallas Willard said, this is my mentor. He was Dallas Willard's mentor, if you know Dallas Willard, great writer. So this guy's name is Jim Wilder. He has a PhD in clinical psychology, and he wrote this book called The Other Half of Church, where he talks about in church, we often are very left-brained, it's very rational, um, very much information-based logic. He says what is often missing in churches is the right side of the brain, which is mostly about who am I and who are my people, belonging and identity. And he says the way that that is fueled 
um, is not so much by truth as by pleasure and joy and delighting in one another and your facial expressions. He says this uh, quote in that book. He says, love, love is primarily transmitted through the face and the eyes, through the face and the eyes, and only secondarily through the voice. It is what we feel when someone who is with us is happy to be with us. I mean, you all know that experience um, of simply, you know that person likes to be with you. It's that basic. It's, it goes back to the child, uh, the primordial joy of a child, an infant basking in the infant's mother's face, which is very much at the heart of what identifies uh, a, a child. They, they imprint on their mom's face. And it's a, if it's a joyous face, it gives them confidence. And so this is, um, this is what's going on here. Is Jesus is beholding the face of his father, just beaming with love. And um, he is bathed in love so he can go fight the devil. And I would say as a church, as a church for us to be in any good at all to Winston-Salem or the world, uh, we have to enjoy each other. You know, John says, you're going to know they're Christians by their love. This is how the world will see that we're believers, is how we love each other. And so if there is this, you know, right-brained um, enjoyment of one another, taking pleasure in one another, if that's there, people say, I want to be a part of that. Um, I want to be part of that, that community where they're really enjoying each other, where they actually, like, clearly are smiling at each other, and their faces light up when they see each other, and there's... You know, hugs and handshakes and fist bumps and eye contact and the, the, the use of each other's names. You know, it's so good to see you, Bill, or it was great to be with you, Jane, or whatever it is. Um, that kind of overcomes that massive rejection barrier we all feel where we, it takes a lot for us to be convinced that this person's not going to reject me. And when you actually enjoy each other like that and simply take pleasure in each other, that barrier comes down and we can actually believe, you know, I, I think she actually really likes being with me. Or I actually think that he enjoys my company. And that is what was given to the Son of God, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Before he went out into the desert, uh, he was just bathing in the, the love of the Father. You've seen those, um, those lizards in the desert that sit on rocks and they kind of, they're, like they stick right up and they, they just love getting the sun. Uh, they, they are actually energized and nourished by the sun. And that's what... We need to do with the love of the Father, as Christ did. Enjoy his pleasure. Enjoy and think about his pleasure that he takes in you. So that's the first thing. Now the second thing is that there's a mission that can't stop with that. Um, you've got to be uh, sent out to love other people with this, with this pleasure and this delight. So in verse 12 it says, The Spirit immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, the Gospel Mark uses immediately because it's written to a Roman audience where they like action, so it would be like a short action film, the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel, most compact gospel. He immediately did this, and then he immediately did that. It's written oftentimes in present tense. And immediately he goes to the desert. Immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And so the same Spirit that came down on him like a dove is now, uh, it's the word ekbalo, like ballistic. You know, it's like he flung him, like a, a stone being thrown by a slingshot. He flung him out into the wilderness. The same Spirit that empowered him with love, now sends him out uh, into the wilderness. And the wilderness uh, was the abode of darkness and chaos. That was not where you wanted to be. Um, one of the most interesting details of this passage is verse 13. And I, I had never noticed this verse until I was studying it with two friends. 
It says simply he was with the wild animals. And I was like, what is going on with the wild animals? And uh, one of the guys I was studying was like, is this like Snow White where there's squirrels and robins and, you know, badgers and these cute woodland animals? And I don't, don't think that was what was going on here at all. I think this is the wilderness. And so it's more like there's snakes out here, there's scorpions out here, there's hyena, there's cheetah, there's bats. Uh, these are forces that are hostile to human life. They are part of the cursed creation. They almost represent the part of creation that is most alienated from human life. And it's very interesting that he is out there uh, taming the wild animals, in a sense. In the same way he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he tamed the donkey, um, even though it was a wild, it had never been ridden before. This young colt, never been ridden. And he tames it by his mere presence. And somehow he is able to sit out there in the wilderness. It's like Adam 2.0. You know, Adam was with the, the animals in the garden. Jesus is sitting out there with a wild, these terrible wild animals that would normally kill him. He's just sitting with them. And then in the New Jerusalem, we find out that the lion and the lamb lie down together. Uh, and the little child plays over the whole of the cobra. So it's nature being reunited. Uh, it's Jesus coming out into nature and subduing nature. But the, the, the main point I'm making here is he is in the devil's lair. That's what the wilderness is. It's not a place you want it to be. It's not a safe place. And he's there for 40 days. As Israel was in the desert for 40 years. If you know the story of the wilderness wanderings of Israel in Exodus, they were out there for 40 years. And so he is locked in single combat with Satan. It's like a cage match with Satan in Satan's home court of the wilderness. And they are doing single combat. I don't know if you know that Elon Musk challenged Vladimir Putin to single combat. <laughs> and the stakes were Ukraine. Um, but this, this is a true, this is single combat. Jesus and the devil fighting together. Uh, and the stakes are the human race in this case. He goes, he goes out into Satan's area and he attacks him. And he does what Israel could not do. He is, he is doing what Israel failed to do. He is the true Israelite. Uh, he is the one who is um, the son of Jacob. And he's going out there to do what Adam didn't do and what Israel didn't do. He went there to fight Satan off. And mostly to fend off the lies. If you think about the way that Israel failed. Uh, Israel was out in the wilderness and the, the devil. And I realize I keep talking about the devil and Satan. And I really do believe that that kind of being does exist. So you know. It's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. And in a world like we live in today where you see uh, the brutalities that we saw in the outskirts of Kiev recently. It's hard to believe there isn't a devil. If you can believe there's a God, surely there's an equal Power are not an equal, but an opposite power of darkness that's doing these horrible things. So I do think there's a devil. I think the Son of God came and he fought the devil, and the, the fight is up here. It's a, it's a mental battle. It's, it's, not, it's got nothing to do with weapons or strength. You know, he, he was not jacked. He was not like this giant guy fighting the devil. He, he was mental warfare. And when Israel was out there in the desert, the way they lost is they believed lies. They believed Satan's lies. And so, for one thing, when they were at the Red Sea and the Egyptians were about to destroy them, um, they thought uh, to themselves, He's not going, God is not going to protect us. Uh, we're doomed. We might as well die right now. We should go back to Egypt because we're going to die. And that was one of the lies they kept believing, that God is not going to protect them. And then when God protects them and saves them 
from Pharaoh's army and drowns Pharaoh's army. Then they go a few miles farther, and now they're beginning to complain that God is going to let them starve because there's no food out here. And they say, we wish we could go back to Egypt and eat from the flesh pots of Egypt. So again, mental warfare. God's not there for us. He's not going to provide for us. He's not going to give us security. He's not going to give us the food we need. And then they come to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And once again... They start believing lies. They believe that they can't defeat the Canaanites. They say, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to them. They're too big for us. We're not going to go in there. We're not going to fight them off, even though God had promised them the land. So another lie. They don't believe that God is powerful. Uh, They don't believe that God is enough. And so they, they believe lie after lie after lie. And in the wilderness here, Jesus, as the true Israelite, is fighting back against those same lies. And so the first temptation was, and Mark doesn't record these, but... If you look at Luke and if you look at Matthew, they record these temptations. The first one was, turn this stone into bread. Um, The the, the devil says to him, if you just ask, uh, you can make God turn this stone into bread. I challenge you to do it, is what Satan says. And so it's that same temptation about, you're not going to be fed. You know, God is not going to take care of you. You're starving. You haven't eaten or drinking for 40 days. No food, no water. And, And the devil's like... Force your father to turn this stone into bread if he's real. And so he's tempting him to believe that same lie that God is not going to provide for you. And Jesus fights that one off. He says, no, I trust my baptism. The father loves me. I don't need to do that. I don't need to tempt him in that way. And then the devil says, I can give you all of these nations. You don't have to go to that cross. I can make you uh, the king of all these. I can make them bow down to you. Um, if you just trust in me. And again, Jesus says, no, uh, that's not how the victory is going to be won. It's going to be won through the cross. I'm going to trust my father's plan. I'm not going to trust myself. And then finally, the devil says, if you jump off this temple, uh, if you uh, force God to make God, your father, prove to you that he's there to protect you, um, then everybody will realize that you're the Messiah. And everybody will see that you can perform these miracles. And again, Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's going to be done. I'm going to trust my Father. So again and again and again, Jesus keeps saying, I will trust. I will not force. I will not tempt. I will, I will open myself to the, to the providence and the ways of God. And that's how he wins the victory. And Mark calls this the gospel of God in verse 14. And a gospel meant that you, uh, you went out and proclaimed the victory um, of a king. or a, if, if you were the, um, the people who lived in Sparta and you went out to fight the uh, King Xerxes of Persia, as happened, famous battle. When they won that battle, when the 300 Spartans held off the massive armies of Persia, somebody ran back to Sparta and they proclaimed victory. That the Spartans had won the victory. And that word is gospel. Euangelion. It's a proclamation of the victory. And so this is what's going on here. He is preaching the gospel of God because he has won the victory over Satan. He's come back from the desert. He comes into the people of Israel and he proclaims the gospel of God. The king's triumph. He says in verse 15, the the time is fulfilled. I'm back from the desert. I'm the king. I'm here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. I've won the battle. And now join me in this fight against evil. And then he encourages them to repent and believe. You know, now that I have won the battle for you and I'm going to be with you, uh, you can also repent and believe because I am fighting for you. I have won the battle and so you can join in. And it's like um, when we are tempted now, 
You know, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, when you're tempted, uh, you have this voiceover. It's like the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, that's like the force, uh, use the force. It's kind of this um, voice within a voice. And sometimes you can recognize it going on in your head. There's this other voice that comes in and, and says, you know, the devil will say nobody likes you or something or, or they all hate you or they rejected you or they didn't invite you in. Um, you're not cool. And then this other voice will come in and say, you're loved. You know, you're secure. You don't need that. Um, don't believe those lies that people love you. And so it's, and if that's the voice that Christ came and brought into the human mind. You know, if he had not won that battle, that voice would not be there. Um, that's the voice of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you. Or um, you're tempted to believe you're all alone and that you're in danger, um, that you're not going to have enough money. You're not going to make it. And then this other voice comes and he says, I'm right there with you. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not going to let you starve. I'm not going to let you go broke. I'm not going to let you be destitute. And then you hear the enemy say, you know, you've got to fend for yourself. Nobody's got your back. Um, and then this other voice comes and says, I always protect you. And so this is what the victory means, is that we are now filled with the Holy Spirit that talks to us, that gives us the very power that Jesus had in the desert. And if he had not gone to the desert to fight for us, that would not be there. And so who is the king? Uh, he's the beloved of God. And what did he come to do? What is his mission? To destroy the works of the devil, to defeat the devil. And what is he doing now? Uh, he's fighting for you inside of your head. He's inside of your head and he is telling you the truth. He is bringing you into the Father's delight. And I go back to that prayer that Jesus prayed. Um, it's an amazing prayer where he prays that uh, in John 17, that the same love with which he is loved may be given to us so that we would experience the same thing that Jesus experienced at his baptism. Namely, that uh, we are pleasing to God. And so put your name inside of that. This is my beloved son, Benjamin. This is my beloved daughter, so-and-so. With them, I am well pleased. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad you feel about yourself, that voice is there, the voice of the Father. There's a place um, in Highlands, North Carolina, called Dry Falls, where it's a big waterfall, and it's kind of like if you were under the balcony, and the water's coming down uh, from the balcony, and you're right there, one seat behind it. You can stand behind that Dry Falls. And, uh, and if you just, you know, step out one step, now it's coming down over your head. And I imagine the love between the father and the son is just like this massive waterfall. Um, that is the center of the universe, the energy of the love between the father and the son. And Jesus comes down and he takes us and he says, you know, brace yourself. This might be a little uncomfortable. And he, he, he steps forward with us into that love between the father and the son. And that is what we experience in this meal. Uh, we experience the love between the Remember, we love these rascals.